You're listening to an encore edition of Studio Tulsa recorded earlier this year. Welcome to Studio Tulsa. I'm Rich Fisher. Back in October, the World Wildlife Fund, along with the Zoological Society of London's Living Planet Index, which is a survey of 5,000 species and nearly 32,000 animal populations, determined that the average rate of decline for the globe's wildlife species is around 69% over the last 50 years. And in some areas of the world, like Central America, the Amazon, Central Africa, and in marine ecosystems, that number is even higher. Well, against that gloomy backdrop, there are some positive stories of wildlife rebound. Some thanks to man's direct intervention, others through changes in land and waterway management practices, and still others through animals' own adaptability. Christopher Preston is an environmental philosopher at the University of Montana, and his essays have appeared in The Atlantic, Smithsonian, and the BBC. He now has a new book which documents these population recoveries that are occurring on farmland, prairies, riverways, forests, oceans, even urban areas. The name of the book is Tenacious Beast, Wildlife Recoveries That Change How We Think About Animals. It's published by MIT Press. Christopher Preston, welcome to Studio Tulsa. Thanks very much for joining us. Very much appreciate you having me on. Before we talk about Tenacious Beast, I want to ask about some reporting that's happened over the last couple of months. There have been a series of whale beaching incidents along, along the East Coast. And, you know, that's not unusual in the last few years. And usually the reporting focuses on things like, you know, the composition of the ocean, how the climate is changing, ocean composition, how interactions with man might be affecting these beaching incidents as possible causes. We really don't know. But this time, there was some reporting that talked with scientists who said, you know, one reason we're seeing more beachings are there are more whales. In fact, a lot more whales. And your book sort of gets into this, the idea that while wildlife is proving far more resilient than we previously thought, and I have to say, many species of plants and animals are seeing big declines in populations, but others are adapting, some with some help from man, but sometimes just being left alone, they recover. How important is this development? So I think there's two things that one must keep in mind. The overall picture is one of a biodiversity crisis. There's no doubt that in Elizabeth Colbert's words, we could be heading for a sixth extinction. And so I don't want any listener to imagine that uh, we could doubt that. But within that rather bleak picture, there are some animals that are coming back pretty well. And some species of whales are included amongst that. And so I do think it's important to shine a light on some of those successes because it's possible they have something to teach. And that's certainly what I try to do in this book, Tenacious Beasts. And, you know, I think a, a lot of common environmental theories thought that if we wanted species, especially large mammals, to recover, they needed room and they needed separation from human activity. And what your book points out is, as anyone living in our city in Tulsa you know, it's not unusual to see a fox trotting across a busy street, coyotes, bears, raccoons, you know, other animals. This gets to one of your central points is how we're seeing a new model of coexistence emerge. How important is this model and what's involved with it? Yeah, I do think coexistence is going to end up being important for wildlife recovery. We live in the Anthropocene, the human age, 
And that's the age where humans really have spread themselves quite a long way around the planet, and uh, wildlife has been squeezed out of many of its traditional haunts. So if animals are going to recover, we're going to be looking at cases where we have to cohabit. And the surprising thing is that's really quite possible. There are a few challenges involved for sure, but it's really quite possible to share a landscape with wildlife. You, know, you mentioned coyotes in the city. Uh, I was struck by that cougar in Hollywood, P-22, <laughs> yeah. recently died, but lived 10 years in the Hollywood zip code, which is really quite amazing. 10 years where it didn't really bother many people. It stayed healthy and showed just how tenacious wildlife can be. So figuring out how to share a landscape, I think, is as important as figuring out how wildlife survive out there back in the wilderness. As you began exploring some of these stories that you you write about in Tenacious Beast, uh, what was perhaps the most surprising to you of how animals can learn to coexist uh, around people? Well, wolves in Europe are a really interesting place. <laughs> uh, wolves in the western United States, where I live, are associated with places like Glacier National Park and Yellowstone and the Bob Marshall Wilderness. And I even heard a wolf biologist out here doubting whether wolves were really the right species for some parts of Europe. But what's happened in the last decade or so is wolves have made their own way back to every single country in continental Europe. And that includes countries like the Netherlands, which is the fifth densest populated country in the world. It includes Belgium. It includes Luxembourg. And these wolves are showing themselves quite capable of living much closer to humans than we thought they could. And so we're learning new skills for cohabitation, and so are the wolves. Um, these are smart animals. They learn what they can and cannot do and can and cannot get away with. And so Europe, I think, has some really interesting lessons about how to share a planet with wildlife. One of your first big stories is how wolves have returned to the Netherlands. And in fact, there were several stories where, uh, I guess the first story was one, it was not really a, a case. It's somebody uh, killed a wolf somewhere far away and left the carcass in the Netherlands. But in fact, they have returned at this particular point. And that seems at great odds because we think of the Netherlands as, first of all, densely populated. And what's not populated is is a monoculture for agriculture and uh, farming and dairy cows and the like. Uh, is that surprising to you that wolves were able to coexist in that particular environment? Well, if we associate wolves only with wilderness, we're really just giving a fraction of the picture here. You know, wolves, like I said, they're smart. They can improvise and they can work out how to survive on a landscape. But there's, there's something about wolves that I think uh, perhaps indicates this shouldn't be too shocking for us. 15,000 years ago, wolves figured out how to share spaces with humans when they domesticated, when they became dogs. So wolves have actually transitioned in the past between being beasts of the wilderness and the furry pet that curls up at your feet in front of the fire. Perhaps that might have given us a hint that wolves are not just happy to be out in wild lands, but can also creep around the edges of landscapes where humans live as well, and can actually do quite well, taking small mammals, uh, rodents, uh, small deer. One of the things in the Netherlands which favors wolves is that there's a huge overpopulation of deer and of wild boar, and the wolves are just quite happy to snack on those. 
and as much as they can not bother us whilst they get on with their lives. What's been the reaction in a place like the Netherlands, which I, I would assume had not seen wolves for hundreds of years, maybe? What's the reaction of the people to the fact that there might be wolves interacting in their communities or near their communities? I think this is a really interesting question because one can imagine sort of a knee-jerk reaction that dredges up uh, century-old attitudes, the idea is that you can't possibly have a wolf close to people, and wolves, in, in Teddy Roosevelt's words, were beasts of waste and desolation. But times have changed, and people are generally quite excited about the prospect of wild animals living close to them. Uh, we have different tools. We have better science. We have better ways of living alongside wild animals. And so people are actually quite excited at the prospect of having some of these charismatic beasts living a little bit closer than perhaps they were a century ago. And one of my goals in the book is to update our conception of animals and not to rely on past reactions and knee-jerk reactions, but to look at these animals afresh. You know, they're, they're getting a second chance, both ecologically and socially. They have a chance to sort of show themselves in different ways, and we have a chance to treat them in different ways so that cohabitation is more possible than perhaps it was in the past. Let me ask you a little bit uh, before we move on to some other subjects about, you know, there's probably two reactions in the Netherlands. If you are a city dweller, you know, you're excited about the fact that, you know, this large mammal is returning to an ecosystem or a place where it had, had long been gone. But if you're a dairy farmer, for example, you might have a different reaction. Do you see that bifurcated reaction, much like we see with things of like brown bears or uh, wolves in the American West? So there's no doubt that there is an urban-rural divide, and, and it's, it's obvious why there would be. I mean, there's a lot more at stake for you if you're trying to raise livestock on a landscape to which wolves are returning. If you're in a city, your income doesn't depend on whether or not there's wolves in the region. So it's not surprising to find that urban-rural divide. But equally, it's not that the views of rural residents should necessarily completely overrule the views of urban residents. You know, wildlife, generally speaking, in the United States, certainly, uh, is a shared resource. It belongs to everybody in each state. Uh, and so the views of urban residents and the views of rural residents both have to be taken into account. Of course, the trick is for the urban residents to put skin in the game, uh, to put their money where their mouth is, and make sure that these additional economic pressures that the return of some wildlife species bring to rural residents, make sure that those economic pressures are not an excessive burden uh, and that there is justice uh, and fairness in how those costs are borne. And so as long as urban residents don't just sort of sit back uh, in their comfortable environments and say, yes, bring the wildlife back and let's let everybody else just deal with whatever inconvenience it provides. As long as urban residents take the concerns of those that have to cope with return species, they take those concerns seriously, I think there is the possibility of forging a way forward. One last question about uh, wolves and bears, because uh, and you spent some time writing about bears as well, but in Europe, you have wolves that seem to deal with coexistence pretty easily, or at least a lot easier than we would think of 
say, the North American species. Brown bears, the same way. Brown bears in the Apennines are, you know, they're around humans. They don't seem to bother humans and human development and go about their way. In North America, we tend to follow this idea that those species need to be separated from man, need big areas of wilderness. Is there something inherently different about the populations, or is this possible in North American species as well? So one interesting statistic that bears on on what you just mentioned is that Europe has half the land area of the United States. It has twice the human population, and it has twice the number of wolves. It's really remarkable to think about half the land, twice the people, and somehow twice the wolves. That suggests that wolves are much easier beasts to cohabit with, perhaps, than we think in the United States. Over here, there's a long history of environmental thought, which originates with people like John Muir and the Sierra Club. It's a whole school of thought that suggests that wilderness is a place where people do not belong and wild beasts do, and cities are our true home. Now, if that's how you begin your conception of the environment, that animals belong one place, humans belong another, then of course, for decades, if not centuries, you're going to have an attitude that says, as soon as a wolf sets its paw uh, anywhere near a city, or as soon as a bear eats an apple uh, anywhere near where humans are living, then somehow you have crossed some metaphysical boundary, some kind of state of how things must be. But I, I think I would argue, and I try to talk about this in the book, sort of gently and not, not in a way that, that is too dogmatic. But I think I would argue that that's an artifact of ideas. Uh, that's a product of how we've set up our conception of wildlife and our conception of humanity. And one of the underlying goals in this book is to just nudge those conceptions a little bit, just question those setups a little bit, and try and create categories that are a little bit truer to how the situation really can be on the ground. My guest today is Christopher Preston. He teaches environmental philosophy at the University of Montana, and he's the author of Tenacious Beast, Wildlife Recoveries That Change How We Think About Animals. It's published by MIT Press. There's a number of stories you talk about, uh, salmon habitat restoration, the use of beavers in restoring fire-ravaged terrain, ocean populations. I want to talk a little bit about the bison story because... The bison story is, it's an early recovery uh, story, I think, for the most part. But there is a divide over what the bison should be. What should the genetic makeup of a true bison be? Should it be genetically pure or maybe not? And you found that this is, there's a huge debate over the genetics of a species that recovers. How important is this in your view? So this is a really interesting aspect of the story, I think. When you look at bison recovery, as you said, uh, things have gone pretty well. From uh, the beginning of the 20th century till now, bison have gone up from around about 500 animals to 500,000 animals. And so from a conservation standpoint, that recovery has been pretty successful until you recognize that many of those 500,000 bison, if not all of them, and there's been some research recently suggesting it is all of them, many of these bison have some cattle genes in them. 
And those cattle genes originated through early attempts at crossbreeding bison with cattle. You can imagine being a rancher out west in the 1910s and 20s, thinking that my cattle would be pretty tough if they had a little bit of bison genetics in them. And those attempts at crossbreeding have had the consequence that now many, if not all bison in North America have some cattle genes. Now, conservationists could find that alarming because the species is no longer quote unquote pure. Uh, the species is quote unquote contaminated with cattle genes. And on its face, this seems enormously disappointing. Except when you realize that, well, perhaps human and bison lives <laughs> and cattle lives have been entangled for much longer than we think. The bison got its original shape in North America in reaction to hunting from early humans. So bison that existed before the current form of bison were bigger, more lumbering beasts. They became smaller to dodge a new predator that threw spears. So when you realize that, that the bison is already impacted by humans, you sort of start to wonder whether these human activities such as cattle breeding are really as big a deal as they had seemed. And then another thing to bear in mind here is that over in Eurasia, bison have already bred back in ancient history with the first versions of cattle, the aurochs, yes. os primigenius. So bison and cattle, at least in Eurasia, are already hybridized, even before humans show up on the scene. So there's a little bit of evidence here that being obsessive about genetic purity, being concerned about quote-unquote contamination, may in the end not be the right attitude. And I don't want to say that that issue is settled for me. Uh, throughout the book, I kind of bounce back and forth. <laughs> you waffled. Different, <laughs> different opinions on this. But certainly the purest version where you insist that a wildlife species has to have complete historical faithfulness to its original genome, that purest version possibly uh, needs looking at in the light of where we're at today. And of course, you also uh, talk with the uh, environmentalists and people who are looking at the actual oryx species, the European wild cattle species, and they're pretty out front about it. It says we'd really like an oryx 2.0 that's a little less tolerant of being around humans than, than the actual species is. Yeah, I had a fascinating conversation with a Dutch wildlife specialist who is trying to breed something as close as possible to the ancient auroch in order to restore natural grazing on the landscape. European landscapes were grazed by aurochs for many millennia, and that gave those landscapes a certain shape and character and a certain ecology. And since that species went extinct in the 1600s, the landscapes have missed the presence of that herbivore. So they're trying to breed something as close as possible to the auroch. They named it not auroch, but Tauros. Tauros, yeah. And so Tauros is supposed to be in the 99 point something percents of similarity to the ancient auroch. And it's sort of an exciting possibility to think that the landscape will heave again with these giant lumbering beasts and perhaps some of the conditions that they created several centuries ago might now be able to be recreated. 
that sort of is a natural transition point to one of the next subjects you talk about in depth, and that is habitat restoration for salmon, uh, certainly on the Pacific Northwest Coast. So many dams have have brought to just a, a mere trickle this once huge migration on all of the western rivers. And uh, you detail several dam removals that have had amazingly big changes in the population of migrating fish uh, back into these streams, the Elhua River on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State. Tell me a little bit about what you learned about that, and were scientists surprised at how quickly that population began to rebound and start moving back up that stream and bring these natural cycles back? So yeah, I'd love to. If if I can just put a little bit of personal uh, background into this story here. I'm from England originally, and I hadn't been in the U.S. long before I went up to Alaska to work in the fishing industry. And up there, I just got completely taken by salmon and by these salmon runs. Just the profusion of fish that can head up a river at spawning time and the intelligence of them. I mean, they make it back to the same little pool where they were hatched several years before. It's just a remarkable phenomenon. So when I started hearing about dams coming out and salmon starting to return, I felt very attracted to that story. And there's a particularly striking case on the Elwar River. And the Elwar is, uh, most of it, about 95% of it, is within the boundaries of Olympic National Park. And these two dams were coming out. And as soon as the dams came out, you had this really quite uh, well-looked-after habitat that the salmon could return to spawn in. Also interesting about the Elwar is that it meets the sea right by the lower Elwar Klallam tribal reservation. So this restoration of fish and this restoration of the ecology could also play a role in cultural restoration. So it was very well studied. Uh, Lots of baseline measurements were made before the dams came out and then the dams came out and we've been watching now for about 10 years. Immediately, literally immediately, weeks later, fish started passing through where these dams had been and started sniffing out ancient spawning grounds. Now, it hasn't been easy. There was a huge amount of sediment built up behind these dams. And when these dams came out, the sediment spilled out the mouth of the river, actually created a new beach there where the river meets the ocean. And it's taken quite a lot of time for the sediment to start to find a sort of natural resting place out in the estuary there. But fish have been coming back constantly since those dams came out. Uh, when I spoke to Robert Ellison of the Lower Elwar Clallam a couple of years ago, as we stood on this new beach that had been formed by the sediments, he said his dream in the next few years was to see a subsistence fishery restored for the tribe, harvesting coho salmon. The coho salmon are coming back strong, especially in the last five years. And I read in the last couple of weeks that the subsistence fishery for coho might be just around the corner. So has it been a surprise uh, the way the recovery has happened? No, it hasn't been a straight line. There's been good years and worse years, but there were originally 400,000 salmon going up the Elwar River. And that went down to about three to 5,000 when the dams were in. And all of of those salmon that were coming back were coming up to the first dam because they could get no further than that. But there's some hope that in the next few decades, 
the number of returning salmon is going to start creeping up towards that 400,000 as the fish start to explore more and more of this newly liberated river. That is indeed good news. And there are a lot of good news stories uh, in, in your book, Tenacious Beasts, Wildlife Recoveries That Change How We Think About Animals. But I do want to talk about something that you encountered with practically every story of these animal population rebounds. And these are optimistic advocates and scientists involved with the species revival. There's this big if, and of course that big if is climate change. Yeah, so you've got to be very careful when you write about good news with biodiversity. Yeah. Because as you point out, on the one hand, you've got the pressures on biodiversity that still exist with growing human populations and the growing reach of our technology. And then on the other hand, if, if that's not bad enough, you've also got the locomotive of climate change barreling towards us. Uh, and climate change is going to add pressures to species. It's going to make habitat conditions more difficult in certain situations. So you, you really do have a double whammy here. And I, I want to be really clear that I'm not being naive about the prospects for some of these species to come back. It's going to be a tough road. There's no doubt about that. Having said that, the idea of a positive vision, a vision full of possibilities, uh, the idea that we could imagine a world, uh, we could envision a world, we could feel a world with more wildlife in it, I think is a motivating story to tell. And we're going to see with climate change how animals respond to that. There is sometimes some plasticity in animal behaviors. There's some flexibility in exactly how animals uh, develop uh, and adapt to conditions, to these tougher conditions that are heading our way. There will be animals that find themselves able to exploit these warmer conditions. Not that those warmer conditions are desirable, uh, but they're coming and there will be animals who find they can adapt. And so I think in the face of climate change, one of the best things we can do is to keep our ecosystems as resilient and as biodiverse as possible. And there's a sense in which by doing that, we can help ourselves with climate change. And one of the stories, or a couple of the stories that I uh, follow in the book are the recovery of sea otters and the recovery of humpback whales. Sea otter recovery has led to the recovery of kelp forests. Mm -hmm. And that's because sea otters eat sea urchins and sea urchins are really bad for kelp forests. So if you have sea otters back on the landscape, you have more kelp and kelp is really good at pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. But it turns out sea otters are allies. They're on the same side. They're doing good climate work for us. Uh, and so I think if we're concerned about climate change, we should encourage uh, otter repopulation. And there's a similar story one can tell about whales. Whales are great at moving nutrients around the ocean. And by moving nutrients, they can create phytoplankton growth in areas where phytoplankton was struggling. That phytoplankton also sucks a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere. So more whales means more phytoplankton. More phytoplankton means more carbon pulled out of the atmosphere. So it turns out that biodiversity is actually good for the climate change problem. And I think if we can encourage it in as many places as we can, we might find ourselves pleasantly surprised at the good company we're keeping. 
It's a very interesting book. Christopher Preston, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Christopher Preston teaches environmental philosophy at the University of Montana. His new book is titled Tenacious Beasts, Wildlife Recoveries That Change How We Think About Animals. It's published by MIT Press. Well, that's Studio Tulsa for today. Our program is produced and edited by Scott Gregory. The views of our guests and commentators are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of KWGS or its licensee, the University of Tulsa. I'm Rich Fisher. Thanks for listening.